Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Just a couple of weeks after I first discussed the Ironman VR series and made mention of the fact that so many were clearly making a mockery of the whole thing by posting some pretty ridiculous results by gaming the system, it appears that the folks over at the WTC came to the same realization and appear ready to crack down. Based on an interview that WTC CEO Andrew Messick gave to Triathlon Magazine, the following changes are planned to the racing series. Athletes are now going to have 12 hours to finish all of the events in the VR race instead of having an entire weekend to do them on their own. Currently, athletes can split any effort up into a bunch of smaller legs, and that's not going to be allowed in the future. Ironman is working on technology that will ensure each leg is done as a continuous effort, similar to what we would normally see in a race. Runs, in addition, are also going to have to be done outdoors. Since there can be so much variability with treadmills, run efforts are now going to have to be standardized to take place outside. In addition, bikes are going to have to be done on trainers using the Ruby platform, as opposed to what we have seen, for example, on Zwift, where people were able to manipulate their routes so that they could do their entire ride downhill and achieve the kinds of speeds that we've seen posted. Athletes are also going to have to complete the designated course for the Ironman VR competition on any given week within the Ruby platform. Furthermore, Ironman's also looking into creating a biological athlete passport, which is going to be able to monitor performances over time and therefore highlight sudden jumps in performance. Now, I actually think this is great, and I have to say that if it shakes out in a way that looks reasonably fair, I might be tempted to actually participate. What I think is actually a bit funny in all of this is the number of people who have started to complain that their sub-four-hour half-Ironman distance performances are now being called out. I was only doing it for fun, seems to be the excuse that they're giving, and why can't I keep doing that? I call this the Ruth argument. Like I said initially, I don't necessarily have a problem with people doing this in whatever way they want if it's just for fun. But since Iron Man chose to post results, then maybe you as the athlete should approach this as perhaps a bit more than just fun. Or, if you are going to game the system, even if it is technically within the rules, like going all the way downhill on a Zwift course, at least let everyone else know that, rather than letting your results stand up there as if somehow you are actually capable of that result in real life. Personally, I go back to what I said in the first place. I think that this is a great idea, the Ironman VR series, that is, to help people manage a really difficult time for triathlon and let folks participate in whatever way they want and just recognize completion of the event without posting the results. For those who really need to see results, then yeah, I think what Ironman is doing now has made a good effort and this will make things uh, a lot fairer. Though, of course, there are always going to be people who figure out a way how to cut corners and make make themselves appear virtually better than they are in real life. For whatever that does for them, I'm certainly never going to understand it. On the show today, Jay Weber is the Director of Operations at Base Performance in Boulder, Colorado, and has been involved in triathlon for over a decade. But his involvement in the sport is different from what I think most of us would consider our involvement, in that aside from just participating, he also officiates. You see, Jay has been an official for the USAT and WTC since 2012, and he joins me today to talk about what that's like and what's involved in taking that path. 
On the recurring segment, Motivation in Isolation, I'm joined by multiple Kona qualifier Anne Barnes. Anne makes her home in British Columbia, Canada, and was training for Ironman Canada. With 2020 on hold indefinitely, she shares her perspective on training and maintaining her motivation. But first off, as always, I have a medical question to answer, and it's kind of a painful one. Exercise-associated muscle cramps affect many in our sport, and can often be a sudden and painful end to a hard training session or a race. Yet, despite the fact that cramping is so prevalent, medical science really doesn't have a great handle on why people cramp or what can be done to prevent them. Well, today I start a special two-part series to explore what is understood about muscle cramps, why they happen, and what could be done to treat them. And that's coming up right now. Exercise-associated muscle cramps are the bane of many athletes' existence. They can interrupt training, ruin an otherwise well-executed race, and even prolong recovery afterwards because of associated delayed-onset muscle soreness. A survey data on exercise-associated muscle cramps have shown that cramps can be seen to affect up to two-thirds of triathletes during or after training or racing, from a fifth to two-thirds of marathoners or endurance cyclists, and from a third to half of American football players. Now, these outsized numbers can belie an important fact, and that is that for some of those afflicted, cramping can be fairly rare, perhaps only one or two incidents over the course of a whole career, and therefore not really all that important, while for others, cramping can happen much more frequently and much more severely and have a much more significant impact on a person's ability to train or even race. Now, I've been unable to find any specific explanation as to why triathletes are affected to such a high degree, but I have my own ideas. We'll get to those over the course of this episode and the next. Now, cramping can be isolated to the small muscles, such as in the hands or feet, but much more commonly involve the large muscles of the lower extremities, such as the hamstrings or the quadriceps, and they can be incredibly intense, and in the most severe cases, can progress even to cause a full-body lockup that lasts for minutes at a time. Cramps are such an incredible nuisance for so many athletes that a major industry has cropped up to develop and produce and market an incredible array of products that are designed specifically to prevent and treat exercise-associated muscle cramps. Now, because cramps can come on in all kinds of different circumstances in different types of athletes, uh, there is hypothesized to be various different mechanisms that may be at play. For example, for some, cramps begin soon after starting exercise, while for others, it takes much longer periods of exercise before cramping is seen. And in still more, some athletes will only experience cramping after they finish exercising. Still, no matter what the cause or no matter what the circumstances when cramping will arise, risk, factor, risk factors for cramps seem pretty consistent. In marathon runners, for example, we see that cramping is associated with high intensity, long duration, and hillier terrain, which all can lead to premature muscle fatigue in competitors who have a history of cramping. A prospective cohort study that looked at 210 Ironman triathletes also identified independent risk factors for exercise-associated uh, muscle cramping, and they were pretty similar. It included having a history of the condition and competing at higher than usual intensity on a more difficult course. 
looking at 1,300 marathon runners in a different study found that risk factors included those common to all participants in marathon races, including long distance and the presence of fatigue. But also, running at a faster pace than was normal in training uh, tended to lead to the more likely incidence of having cramping. Other risk factors, including older age, a longer history of running, higher body mass index, in other words, higher body weight, shorter daily stretching time, irregular stretching habits, and a positive family history of cramping. It should be said, however, that all of those except for the higher intensity of running and the higher body weight have not necessarily been found in other studies to be associated with cramping. Now, as I mentioned before, because of the different ways that cramping can be seen and the different sort of circumstances under which cramping can arise, over the years, several hypotheses for why cramping has happened have been explored, and many of them have now been disproven. Some of those include heat. So heat as an independent risk factor has been looked at numerous times and has been found definitively to not be a cause of cramping. Similarly, fatigue on its own overstretching, understretching, and lack of fitness, none of these things are on their own a cause of exercise-associated muscle cramping. But what has been left are two main hypotheses, and these are the ones that get the most interest and the one that we're going to talk about over the next two episodes. These are electrolyte and hydration issues versus neuromuscular imbalances. So these two are going to be the subject of this and next episode's medical questions. What are the evidence for each of these? How can you, as an athlete who suffers from cramps, understand that evidence and make the necessary alterations to your regimen to try and prevent or even treat them? And most importantly, how can you make educated decisions about what products to purchase in that effort to prevent or treat your cramps? Let's begin first with the long-standing hypothesis that dehydration and accompanying electrolyte losses are the underlying cause of exercise-associated muscle cramping. Now, the strongest evidence that sweat-related electrolyte imbalances are a factor in some muscle cramps is found in a large-scale observational and prospective study of industrial workers, mainly studies on miners, ship stokers, and construction workers and steel mill workers that were conducted way back in the 1920s and 1930s. And what they did in these studies is they took some uh, all of these workers, they observed them for long periods of time, and administered saline drinks or salt tablets, and found that by doing so, they were able to greatly reduce the incidence of cramps. It's pretty amazing that the best evidence that we have to this point that suggests that salt is really the underlying cause of muscle cramps comes from these studies just about 100 years ago. And it's pretty amazing that the hypothesis was made and defended all that time ago and that that remains our best evidence to this time. Now, although the scientific methodologies in that period were not really up to the same standards as they are today, they were actually still pretty good. The author of that study attributed cramps at the time to the higher temperatures that the workers were working in, excessive drinking of plain water caused by dryness of the mouth and throat in those working conditions, and the fact that they were continuing to work hard at the time that they became dehydrated. He also observed that cramps tended to occur during the second half of a working shift, and in men who were less physically fit, thus implicating not only sweat losses, but also fatigue in the etiology. So it should be noted that a cramp is not attributed necessarily to dehydration or to increased serum electrolyte concentrations, but rather to a form of almost water poisoning of the muscles brought about by the combination of a great loss of water and salt by sweating and then excessive replacement of all that fluid loss drinking just plain water. And this would result in a decrease in urine output 
and increase free water within the body and a dilution of what salt was remaining. Now, later studies tried to replicate this work and looked at construction workers at the Hoover Dam and steel workers in Ohio in the middle of the last century. And in that study, those who suffered from cramps displayed, again, dehydration, lowered concentration of sodium in the blood plasma, little or no sodium or chloride in their urine, suggesting that these electrolytes were being retained by the kidneys in order to make sure no further loss occurred. And altogether, this was taken to suggest that both fluid and electrolyte losses played an important role in the onset of cramping. When these workers were then divided into groups, and there were some 12,000 of them, and some were given saline to supplement in their drinking water and some were not, the result was that cramping was seen to decrease quite dramatically in those who received the saline or salt tablets versus those who did not. Now fast forward into uh, this uh, century, and you'll find some more recent studies that have assessed changes in hydration status and plasma electrolyte concentrations in athletes and specifically those who've experienced muscle cramps. And those studies have included marathon runners, participants in a 56-kilometer road race, competitors in Ironman triathlons, and participants in ultramarathons. Interestingly, in these studies, none have shown any association between cramps and specifically serum electrolyte changes. In other words, if you look at the serum sodium and the serum chloride of these athletes after participating in these events, those who have cramps have the exact same sodium concentration as those who haven't. Now, it's important to note that serum electrolyte concentrations may not necessarily be the most relevant. The reason for that is because changes of sodium levels within the cells may not be reflected accurately in the blood serum. Similarly, Changes in total body amounts of electrolytes can have profound effects on cell membranes without necessarily showing any change to serum concentrations. There is some additional evidence that athletes who lose large amounts of salt in their sweat may also be more prone to cramps, but this is based on some pretty small studies, and so it's difficult to interpret those with any degree of certainty. More than anything, there appears to be more recent evidence and support not so much of electrolyte losses, but of too much free water replacement. In other words, athletes exerting themselves, especially in warm environments, tend to sweat a lot, they lose a lot of water and some salt, and then replace it all with free water. And several studies have shown that in these kinds of circumstances, when athletes exert themselves to the point of dehydrating their pre-exercise body weight to levels of 1-3%, to and then rehydrate with plain water, cramping is significantly more likely. And this is kind of supported by other medical literature because the idea that electrolytes are the main cause of cramping is not supported by the fact that when you get dehydrated and when you restore your body fluids with water, you should see hyponatremia or low sodium concentration. Well, there are a lot of medical conditions that cause hyponatremia and none of those patients get cramps. So it would seem that hyponatremia on its own can't be the whole explanation. Now, what isn't clear is why cramping isn't universal in these conditions. For example, all the people who go out and exert themselves and get dehydrated and take in free water, they don't all cramp. Only some of them do. Also, why is cramping also seen in cool environments? True, it's not as frequent, but it is still seen. And these people aren't becoming dehydrated and aren't diluting their sodium, aren't seeing the kind of electrolyte changes that one would expect to see if electrolytes alone were the cause of cramping. So while cramp is often associated with large sweat losses during prolonged exercise in the heat, 
Because it also occurs in cool environments with little or no sweat loss, this suggests that sweat loss alone and the consequent disturbances of electrolyte imbalance can't really account for all cramping. Notwithstanding these observations, there is overwhelming evidence from large-scale industrial settings that we've talked about previously that cramping occurs more frequently in environments that are hot, although not necessarily humid, and where sweat losses are high. So all of these results taken together suggest that a combination of sweat loss and water intake makes muscles more susceptible to electrical stimulation-induced muscle cramping. But the susceptibility to muscle cramp decreases when a drink with high electrolyte content is ingested. And all of this together makes me believe that electrolytes alone are unlikely to be the sole answer for the why behind muscle cramps. So what then could be going on? Well, on the next episode of the TriDoc podcast, I'll take a look at the question of altered neuromuscular control and see if that might provide us with an alternative explanation for this confounding problem of painful muscle cramps. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com. A long time ago, in the time before coronavirus, we had these things called races. And in those things called races, there were these people called athletes. Athletes would generally follow the rules, but occasionally they wouldn't. And for that, there were other people called officials. When I used to race in these long-ago halcyon times, I often wondered about those nameless, often pretty anonymous people in the striped jerseys on the back of motorcycles. And so I was excited to learn that, unbeknownst to me, I was actually friends with one of them on Facebook. Jay Weber is currently the Director of Operations for Base Performance in Boulder, Colorado. He's been in the sport since 2009, having gotten into triathlon via team and training in San Diego and completed over 100 endurance events during that time. When the ITU came to San Diego in 2012, Jay got into officiating and is now a level two official with ITU. He's also the head official for Latin America for Ironman and a USAT elite rules official. He has been a USAT certified coach as well as head coach for team and training, helping start their virtual training program. Before leaving San Diego for the mountains, Jay was the race director for the triathlon club of San Diego for five years. But now I am thrilled to say he's joining me today on the TriDoc podcast to talk about officiating and what it's like being in isolation during this time of coronavirus. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I know we've had a couple of uh, close calls where we almost got together to do some skiing before everything shut down, and uh, hopefully we will uh, get to do that again in the future. Uh, but for now, I want to talk about your experience as an official uh, in triathlon. What, what, what exactly is involved in becoming an official? So it depends on the route you want to take. Typically in America, being a USAT official is the, I wouldn't say easiest, but it's the, it's the road that has the most opportunities because of the amount of races. And to become a level five official, you basically just have to reach out to someone at USA Triathlon take a class that lasts about eight hours, and then you start with a mentor to official races that are non-draft legal with those individuals. Okay. And you mentioned, so you, you're level two, and you said that there's five levels? I'm level two with ITU. I'm level three with USAT. Okay. Um, but yeah, there are five levels. Uh, level one is 
the person who would do a high prize purse non-draft legal USAT race like Escape from Alcatraz or the New York City Triathlon, and a level one official would be the person running those kind of races. Okay. And is uh, progressing through the levels, is that a matter of experience or is that a matter of taking additional certifications? Uh, a bit of both. There are recertification exams, uh, additional classes, but also it's, it's all based on experience, the races you've done. Uh, as an assistant, as well as races that you've done with your a mentor that really suggest you you move on to the next level. And is the certification um, uh, does it cross over? Like, if you're certified at a certain level in USAT, is it the same for you know World Triathlon Corporation and ITU? So with Ironman or World Triathlon Corporation, they look for you to be a certified non-draft legal official. But as far as attending any of the classes, they're not as concerned what level you're at. They may not request you to show up to a world championship event, a regional championship event, or even a prize purse event if you don't have the experience and say are a level three official. Okay. But there's no direct correlation there. Before getting your draft legal certification with ITU, some countries have you go through a certain process before you can become a draft legal and ITU certified official. USAT has them in collaboration. So I am also, I guess, a USAT draft legal certified official, which allows me to continue my ITU certification on a separate level. Okay. And how does it work in terms of getting the officials for different races? Is there like a sign-up sheet somewhere or is there some kind of uh, outreach uh, on behalf of the race organizers? Yeah, great question. So there's the commissioner of officials in for USA Triathlon. Under Deb Wilson is the regional coordinators and the regional coordinators reach out to everyone that's certified in their region saying, here are the races that are USAT certified that have requested officials. It's not required for races to request officials. Some races will say, we want to be USAT certified, but we're going to self-officiate, in which case I wouldn't show up in any shape, way, or form to be an official. But those races that request officials, they put them on a spreadsheet, as you said, and we can sign up for them. For Ironman, it really comes from the global head of officials and the North American head referee to request first, again, their head official. And from there, it's the responsibility of the head official to go out and find the officials that are going to assist them on race day. So, for example, in the United States, I'm the head official for Boulder 70.3 this year. And... When we get to be 60 days out, if the race is still on schedule, it will be my responsibility to go out and find 
the eight to 12 officials, depending on how many motorcycles I have, to find those athletes to, or those officials to assist me on the day. And is this a, a paid gig or is this a volunteer thing? There's a, a small stipend. It, it's certainly for the love of the sport, not anything that I'm going to retire on. Um, but it's a situation where we have stipends so that we are at least not out money. Okay. And is it the same officials who are officiating the pro race as are managing the age groupers or are there distinct uh, officials for the pros? It, it really depends on the experience level of the team that shows up. So if, if you're at a world championship event, for example, uh, Ironman St. George next year will be 70.3 world championships. And the team that shows up there will be capable of doing anything in the field. So it's likely that some of us will start with the pro athletes and then circle back to the age group athletes. And some officials might have age group athletes throughout the day. Um, if you have some beginner officials at say again, Boulder 70.3, I might say, Officials one, two, and three, you're going to stay with the pro men and women all day. Officials four, five, six, seven, you will deal with just the age groupers all day and will deal with a zone defense. Um, part of the mentality also comes down to courses. If you have a course like Ironman Arizona, where it's three loops, you can do zones a lot easier uh, and, and not have to necessarily focus on a specific group of athletes. Whereas if you go to Kona and the Ironman world championships, you have one 112 mile loop. And so there's different mentalities with how to appropriately officiate based on the courses as well. So describe what an average day is like for an official, uh, coming to a race. When does it begin? Uh, you know, what are you doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So we our, our day starts just like the racers do. Uh, we're there before transition opens. We want to be there as a resource to answer questions ahead of time because while during the course of competition, if, if someone is actively committing a foul, we won't give them a warning or tell them, what they're doing wrong uh, until they've broken the rule, in which case that's when the penalty comes out. But we want to be there as a visible resource ahead of time to answer any questions. Am I allowed to have a camera? Am I allowed to wear earphones on the bike and on the run? What is drafting? And we want to be there. We have all of the pre-race meetings that we show up for and are there to answer questions. But not everybody attends, and so we want to be able to answer those questions on race day as well, just be visible. And then once the race gets going, are you generally, I'm assuming everybody's out on the, the, the bike course? Yes, sir. Yep. And uh, if, it's, if it's not a wetsuit legal race, we'll be there to monitor at the swim start to make sure that people are not wearing wetsuits. To the best of our abilities, we'll monitor that. But once everybody's in the water, uh, we'll wait outside of transition 
for cyclists to come by and we'll monitor the competitive rules for the bike course as well. Um, the, the, the lead pack, the, the people that have the lead on the bike course will also typically get on a mountain bike or a road bike, depending on the course with a helmet, of course, and monitor the run for competitive rules there as well. Okay. Um, how many officials, I mean, for an average race, uh, like what's sort of a bare minimum and what, what's kind of an average, uh, how many are there usually? I'd say on an average race for, you know, if we're using WTC events, will where you see, you know, to call it roughly 2000 athletes, we show up with about eight to 12 officials. Okay. And you know, position fouls, it seems to me, are clearly the big ones that you're probably looking for. And yet with so much crowding on so many courses, it's always struck me as almost arbitrary in how those rules get applied. I mean, I I, I know myself, I, I take pride in trying not to get caught up in packs, but it's like these packs go by you and I'm like, gosh, where is the official? And then you'll see an official go by, but they'll often go by the pack and not do anything. And honestly, I find myself you know, feeling like, well, what are they going to do? They can't flag all of them. So, so uh, what's the approach when you're out there and uh, you see these things going on? What are you so, looking for? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And, and we're looking to build consistency. I, 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 I feel that a lot of the officials that I work with and certainly the officials that I train, we will, if we see a pack, we will certainly pick off as many of them as we can. Um, the way I view it, you know, kind of like you said, a pack will go by and then you'll see an official. If the, if the pack never is found, so to speak, there's only so much we can do. And it's kind of like, again, back in the day when we were able to, to drive our automobiles lots, you, you probably sped quite a bit more than you were caught. Um, we, we are certainly out looking to enforce the rules and, and, keep it as fair as possible. Um, if I see a giant group, I certainly will start at the back and start issuing penalties to as many of them as I can safely get to. Um, it, it really comes down to, 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 to finding the areas where we can control the most uh, and, and make an impact as most as we can. And in Latin America, when I, when I train my team of officials at the races in South America, that's absolutely what we're doing is we are starting at the back and, and finding the groups and, and, and really making sure that our visibility is known while we're there to, to enforce as many as we can. Yeah. In, in all my years, I've had two, I've raced, I've raced so many years. I mean, I've raced a ton of races and I've had two drafting penalties. And in both times, the penalties were pretty much identical. I was trying to get through a pack. And, yeah. uh, I made my way almost through, but the, pr the people at the front just were going too hard. And so once I got towards the front of this pack and I had left most of the people behind, I just kind of gave up and pulled to the side. So I wasn't behind anybody and right. I ended up getting a penalty. And I'm like, yeah. if this official is there, I'm like, why is he picking out me? Who's trying my hardest to get through this pack and not nailing everybody who's part of this pack. And that, that was sort of my frustration at the time. Uh, in retrospect, uh, you know, I could kind of understand 
understand. It's like it, it looks as though I'm just sort of like moving up in this pack and trying to take a position or something and like working it as a pace line. But it's always been a source of frustration. And I know from talking to other athletes, it's like you could try and race as clean as you want. And what ends up happening is you end up getting a lot of athletes who have similar abilities and they just naturally kind of congregate together. And when you have to burn a lot of matches to get out of the group, um, it's, uh, it's tough. And then the officials will come along at just the wrong time <laughs> and you right. end up, and you end up getting caught there. Fortunately, it, it doesn't happen. It's only happened to me, as I said, a couple of times. Uh, I do most of the time. I just, now I just drop off the back and let them go. Cause it's not worth it. Um, but yeah, I, what are the other kinds of things that you commonly see in terms of, uh, infractions? I know obviously blocking and littering must be two of the big ones. Are there other things on the bike that you come up with? Yeah, so intentional littering and drafting are the are the two most egregious penalties if you look from a time standpoint. And drafting is, of course, the biggest benefit on the race course. Littering is the is the one that we're looking at now as well intentionally because we want to be asked back to these courses and. Ironman has to spend a lot of time the day after the race cleaning up after everybody to make sure that that happens. So intentional littering is one that we're seeing less and less of, but it's also one that is is certainly highly enforced. Um, headphones is another one where mm. it's just I, – I, it might be because people aren't reading the competitive rules and they don't think about it, but – Headphones is one of those where, as anyone can understand it, it comes down to a safety issue. It's certainly not a competitive issue um, in most regards. I wouldn't think that most people are listening to their coach and saying, okay, you're at 220 watts, you need to be at 240 watts. It's probably they're listening to you know, Metallica or Pink or any other favorite bands. Um, but at that point, as you know from being on the road so much, it comes down to a safety issue, and that's one that we we don't see as frequently anymore, but it's also one that we're very aggressively looking for because we want every athlete to go home at the end of the day. Uh, at the end of the day, that is my biggest focus. If, if I give zero penalties because I had to remain safe and keep every athlete safe, I'm far more okay with that than risking anything for the risk of putting someone in danger. And that's one of the reasons we look out for headphones so much as well. Do you know what the rationale is for no cameras? Um, as far as, well, it's I, ITU at least wants the rights to all video footage first. So they're not any, they're, they're not necessarily concerned about, uh, what you're going to do with it on social media, but they want to make sure that they have rights to it as well. The view on cameras is similar to music and the fact that it's distracting. If you were to mount your GoPro on your bike, we also want to make sure that it is safely installed and isn't going to fall off your bike on a downhill, get caught in your wheel and tragedy happens. Sure. So it's both a safety issue as well as just having the rights to the, the footage, at least from an ITU standpoint. Sure. Um, Have yeah, you found if, if you're taking out if you're taking selfies, it's very obviously distracting. And well, 
it's wonderful in the grand scheme of things that you're documenting your day. If, if you're taking selfies, you're not as attentive as you can be. And it certainly is dangerous. Yeah, no, I was thinking more about the on bike cameras, uh, you know, the things like yeah, the cyclic and, and stuff. Like I, that. I've seen those poorly, poorly mounted. And if you're doing whatever, 22 miles an hour, even down a hill, and one of those got caught in the wheel, I, I wouldn't want to think about the possibilities of what could happen. Again, your safety at the end of the day is is paramount, and that's my biggest focus. Sure. Have you uh, got a sense, uh, since they've instituted such widespread uh, implementation of the rolling swim starts, do you feel like uh, races are cleaner in terms of drafting since the mass starts? I, I do. I, I feel like it's been a really great move forward because while there's certainly – I mean at the end of the day – triathlon is kind of like the game of golf lowest score wins right you might be a super swimmer and i might be a super biker but if that's the case i'm going to pass you whereas if we're all starting in the same group it's going to stay clumped up all day um kona was exponentially better last year um because of these the new starts and i think it's a very positive move forward for not only the safety of the sport with being able to to really see the athletes throughout the whole day, but I think it also spreads everything out quite well. I agree. I agree. I think uh, both from safety and fairness, I think it's a good thing. Um, what are you looking for on the run? I, I know that uh, there's the outside assistance issue, but uh, is there anything else that you're watching for on the run? Uh, outside assistance, as you said, headphones, and then really just making sure that the uniform rules are being applied appropriately. Um, the, the Ironman rules have gotten more lenient due to feedback throughout the years. Um, and now it's as simple as it just needs to be the zipper connected at the bottom. And we ask everybody to, to cross the finish line with it all the way zipped up. Um, that, doesn't preclude women from wearing sports bra tops with their if they're wearing a one piece rolled up. And as I say at all of my athlete briefings, it's the rules allow a male to do the exact same thing. So if you wanted to wear a sports bra type top, the rules say you can do that. It's just that if you have a zipper, it, it looks more professional and it's better if if everybody is on the same boat. Sure. Uh, I want to finish up with uh, maybe some anecdotes you might have uh, in terms of some of maybe the worst interactions you've had with athletes and maybe some of the better ones you've had uh, while on course as an official. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that really the 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 best and the worst, I think, is typically through athletes not knowing the rules. Um, I, I've seen both good and bad interactions when giving a penalty to athletes where drafting is a perfect example. An athlete was a meter and a half in back of another athlete for half of a mile and they pull up next to him and, you know, racer number 223 blue card for drafting and they get very aggressive and very unhappy. I'm not drafting. I'm, a meter and a half back, which clearly breaks the rules, but they didn't know that. 
I've also had very, very good interactions with athletes in that same scenario and telling them they got a penalty. I wasn't drafting. Well, the draft zone is this. Oh, I didn't know that. Thanks so much. Um, a lot of my other very, very positive interactions with athletes is always at the briefings. We encourage everyone, whether you've raced a race 26 times, you know, you, if you've been to Kona 26 times, you never know if something has changed that you might have missed in the, brief, in the athlete guide. My most positive interactions with athletes is always at the briefings is always having a conversation with them ahead of time and preventing what could have been a penalty had I seen them on the course by just having a conversation. Um, where there is a resource, we, I love officiating because of that and giving them that information is always fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, I am so hopeful that we'll have the opportunity to uh, be having those kinds of interactions without the penalties, uh, but uh, certainly the positive interactions uh, again sometime soon. Uh, Jay Weber is the Director of Operations for Base Performance in Boulder, Colorado. He has been a uh, race official for ITU as well as uh, the USAT and World Triathlon Corporation for uh, many years now. And uh, I thank him again so much for joining me to talk about officiating uh, in triathlon on the TriDoc Podcast today. Thanks so much, Jay. Thank you, sir. You have a great day. Ann Barnes is joining me. She uh, is a self-described endurance junkie and a grandmother of seven. She comes from a background in competitive swimming and water polo, but she took up triathlon in 1987. When she started, she raced mostly short course events in the 80s and 90s, uh, but eventually got herself into the Ironman distance once her kids were in their late teens and establishing themselves as young adults. Her highlights at that distance include four trips to Kona with three podium finishes, and her best ever finish there was placing second. She also has podium finishes in the World 70.3 Ironman Championships as well. She has now moved on to gravel racing as a new adventure because she wants to take a little bit of uh, uh, effort and uh, wear and tear off of those weary joints that she has put uh, a lot of miles on through uh, Ironman Triathlon, but she is still uh, looking forward to racing triathlon once uh, those races get back underway. She had signed up for several events in 2020, including two gravel stage races in Oregon, uh, the Belgium Waffle Ride, which is uh, fairly famous amongst uh, the gravel set, a couple of Grand Fondos, uh, Ironman Canada in August, and Ironman Florida in November. She, uh, like I, is a member of the Cupcake Cartel, and uh, also as a fun fact, is a cycling wine tour guide. She uh, takes groups and individuals out to local wineries for tasting and snacks while exploring the southern Okanagan. But because of the current pandemic, all of that's on hold, and I've been able to get her to settle down just for a short while to talk to us a little bit about her strategies for managing motivation and training during the current COVID pandemic. Welcome so much to the program, Anne Barnes. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. And it's a gut punch, obviously, uh, have all your races canceled for the near, probably midterm future. Uh, how are you doing with maintaining your motivation in terms of getting your training done? Well, I guess after the initial shock of uh, we're not going to be able to go to the pool, we're going to have to switch things up a little bit. I decided to readjust my 
training somewhat and focus on something that I could do inside on my bike. Um, typically, as an endurance athlete, we spend hours and hours pedaling, and um, I wanted to try something different and unique that I'm not very good at, which is try and work on my short-term and explosive power for cycling. So I'm trying to focus on that as something to keep me motivated. It's something different, and um, we'll see how it goes. So far, I've done a couple of Zwift races and and tried my explosive power and just seen how far I can last and hang on to the front group and then drop off when I need to. But um, it's all experimentation at this point, but it's something different and it's, and it's keeping me on my bike, which makes me happy. And are you doing anything to try and manage uh, without the swim training? Are you uh, modifying anything to try and incorporate any kind of fitness that would translate to swimming once you go back? I am doing my cords. I've been a cord user for a long time. I've got a set of cords that I used to travel with when I worked. And so when I couldn't get to the pool, I brought out my cords and did my daily cord routine. So I'm continuing with that while we can't go into the pool. And um, I try to keep my usual routine, which is um, having been a competitive swimmer for all of my life, um, which is, I guess I've been in the pool at 5.30 or 6 in the morning since I've been 12, um, I still will get up early. I'll go downstairs, get on my rower and warm up, and then I'll hit the cords. So hopefully I'll have some transfer of benefit from doing that exercise. Now, as a swimmer, uh, you know, uh, uh, for me as really a non-swimmer who came to swimming as an adult, uh, I find it interesting seeing a lot of people posting, you know, their versions of dry lens uh, training for swimming. And I have noticed a lot of people suggesting rowing as a swimming alternative. Do you find as a longtime swimmer that rowing translates well? I think so. Um, I think it's great for the upper body. Well, the whole entire body. It's a fabulous fitness sport. I think that um, the endurance that I get from rowing will definitely help me maintain my cardio. I find I'm fatigued even after doing it for 40 or 45 minutes. I get a good burn in the upper body as well as my legs. And then, uh, I mean, you know that it's great for the lats and the upper back and uh, everything else. Uh, you know, one of the things I tell my athletes as a coach is that, you know, you're going to lose that feel for the water. Uh, do the cords help you with that? Or is there really nothing that can really substitute for feel water feel? Well, water feel is unique, but I think the cords, if you practice the cords properly, and I think it's a wise idea to take a look at a few YouTube videos of some of the pros or some of the um, brands of cords that are out there and look at their examples to um, see how you should be mimicking the stroke. They've got some good technique ideas. Um, and along with the cords, I think it's important to also use some tubing to do the fine tuning with your upper body, um, your shoulder rotation. Um, I'm doing it in front of me, but I don't think you can see me, but it's where you're working. <clears throat> Excuse me. Your, what is this part? Uh, your deltoids. Yes. Uh, rotator cuff. Yeah rotator cuff and 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 this way yeah <laughs> um, yeah moving your your arms more fine-tuning exercise with the, the the tubing not so much the cords yeah sorry i got mixed up there that's <laughs> okay <laughs> that's all right 
and uh, are you taking this time to focus uh, on any other aspects of your training, strength work, for example, or running, uh, anything else? Yeah, I do some strength work already. Um, I miss my gym, uh, but I've got some hand weights at home, TRX, some tubing that I use, um, some kettlebells. So I do a little bit of that. Um, So hopefully that'll keep me going. I've got a treadmill at home and I've got my bike, of course, uh, here. So I can do everything inside if I had to. And what, what what are the things that you miss most since all this started and you've found yourself kind of shifting to training on your own indoors? I miss my friends. I miss the camaraderie of the swim squad and chatting in the hot tub after the workout and talking about how the coach kicked our butts and, you know, just that face-to-face contact with people in a social setting after a workout or before the workout. I really miss that. So that part is a little bit hard. Yeah. What suggestions do you have for others who are going through this in terms of uh, keeping you know, their motivation on track and staying with the program? Uh, I guess try and hang on to your routine as best you can and um, maybe change the routine up a little bit, focus on something that you're not good at, which I'm trying to do. Um, Don't beat yourself up. If you can't get the workouts in, let them go and then pick them up the next day, but try and stay on it because I think moving is really important right now. Got to keep our bodies moving. Yeah. Do you have any specific personal fears or fears in general for the sport once this is all over? That's a good question. I really wonder what is going to happen. Um, I took my rose-colored glasses off, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I really don't think we'll be seeing any major events happen this year. And then next year, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that we will be able to proceed, but I hope that um, things don't eventually dry up I don't know if that's you know a possibility but um, I worry a little bit about that big events are hard to manage with people coming from all over the world so yeah so how are you managing it sounds like you're you know pretty down I'm just curious how you're managing emotionally with all of this I am good for the most part sometimes you I gotta step away from the social media and the frenzy posts on Facebook don't read those (laughs) I think that's causing undue panic and stress. Um, I have a husband who's very calm. So when I start talking about all this, he sort of puts me back and grounds me and goes, you know what? You can't think about that stuff. Let's just deal with this in the moment and calm down. So I'm pretty calm normally, but stay away from from the ridiculous posts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's nothing like a, a major, you know, world altering event to put things into perspective, right? And give you a sense of what's really important. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your resume because it's incredibly impressive when you sent it to me and then uh, made the comment about if I could find somebody like more impressive to talk to. And I was like, (laughs) I hope that's a joke. Um, Tell me about your trips to Kona. When, When were those with three podium finishes, no less? Well, I didn't start Ironman distance, like I mentioned um, in my resume, until my kids were older, because I was actually a single mom for many of those years bringing them up. So I didn't have the time to do the longer training. I still could do the short training. 
So by the time I hit 51, um, I did my first Ironman in Ironman Canada, and I won my age group and went to Kona. That was 2007. I went on to Kona, and I was on the podium with a fifth-place finish, and I was elated. So I continued on and um, took a couple of years off here and there. Just finances are hard to get to Kona and race all the time. So I went again or qualified again in 2010 um, in Cozumel and um, went on to 2011 in Kona. And that was my most favorite race with a second place finish in my age group. And for anybody who's been to Kona, you know, that run down Ali'i Drive is just it's magic. Yeah, it's just magic. So I tried three more times or two more times and made it again. And so um, then my body started to break down. So I feel fortunate that I've had the opportunity to get there four times and have um, four really good races. I'd love to go again, but I don't know if this body will be able to get me there. I've got arthritis in the hip. And although I keep throwing myself into my training, I think my Competitive days are a little, um, I think they're done. <laughs> ah, but you're still going and you're still doing it with a smile, which is great. And, uh, you know, two races this year, uh, that's, and you know, Ironman Canada again, which is great to see back on the schedule. And we're, uh, I'm scheduled for that one as well. So fingers crossed that that one's going to happen. Uh, and then Ironman Florida in November. So uh, definitely, you know, looking for that shot one more time yeah even if i walk i mean i resign myself to the fact that i may have to do the uh death march in the marathon but you know maybe my swim and my bike will be just so great and then i'll be able to walk really fast i don't know but i love the race i love iron man it's a great event and yeah. it excites me so i'll keep trying so as we're talking today, uh, the World Triathlon Corporation has just uh, announced within the last couple of days their virtual triathlon series. Is that something that interests you or that you think is uh, something that you would participate in? I think so. I think I'd like to give that a try, and I think that's kind of exciting. I haven't read it much about it yet. I just saw it flash on my uh, news feed, but I'll have a look at it and, and uh, give it big consideration. I think it'd be fun. Yeah. And if uh, the schedule comes back on later this summer, uh, is it your intention to stick with all the events that you're signed up for? Yes. Yeah. As long as we're safe. Yeah. yeah. So your motivation then is intact to at least get to those events if they're, if they're able to be held. Yes, indeed it is. I think racing is a big part of my life. It always has been. So I like, I like the competition. I want it to happen. I really do. Do you have any specific suggestions for people who uh, might be feeling a little bit low, uh, that might be you know lacking in motivation? What would you tell them to say? Hey, you know this is this is how you keep the fire lit. I've got friends like that right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I invite them to group ride on Zwift. Um, I FaceTime them and say, well, what are you doing today? Let's, let's, uh, talk about some of the stuff that you can be doing. I think the best thing is to stay socially connected via FaceTime. Um, I did a cord workout via FaceTime with a friend the other day as a laugh and it was fun. We did it. Um, you know, just try and try and rally your troops, try and get your friends to stay active if you can. I think it's important. So leverage technology, be there for each other, help help fill the dark, 
for yeah. each person by being the light for them. I think yeah. those are great suggestions. And uh, yeah, coming from someone who's been in the sport for a long time, I think that they uh, carry a lot of weight. That's uh, Those are really excellent. Thank you, Anne. Uh, Anne Barnes uh, has been in triathlon for, well, going on, she's uh, over 30 years now. Is that right? It's, uh, it's a long time. You don't look like you've been in the sport for that long. And uh, during that time, has made it to Kona four times with three podium finishes. It's uh, quite remarkable uh, achievements. She is scheduled for races this year and, like me, is hoping that they will take place, especially Ironman Canada, where we will get the chance to meet in person. And thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today to talk a little bit about managing motivation and training while in self-isolation. Good luck to you and uh, keep smiling. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a whole lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard on the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with part two of my look at the causes of exercise-associated muscle cramps. Next time, I explore the neuromuscular hypothesis. Michelle Lund is the co-owner of BBSC Endurance Sports, a small, local organizer of triathlons and other endurance events in the Denver area. Her company has been incredibly hard hit by the race postponements and cancellations, and she joins me to give me a look at this pandemic from the perspective of a race director. And I'll have another episode of the Motivation in Isolation segment. Until then, train hard, train healthy.